This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, this isn't my ship. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! This week, uh, I don't know what to think of this episode. It was convoluted and confusing at bits. Yep, it tried to have yep. some points <laughs> and then it didn't and... I think I can write this better. Yeah, probably. When I rewatched <laughs> it, so like I watched through and then was like, okay, that's not really where I expected it to go. That's kind of interesting also, but they didn't do anything with it. And then when I rewatched it to write the synopsis, I was like, why, why did they introduce this plot hole and that plot hole and this other one? None of this because makes sense. Weirdness is good for keeping people interested, even if it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best I could do. <laughs> so this episode was co-written by George F. Slavin and Stanley Adams. Uh, Slavin wrote uh, somewhere between 20 and 30 movies. I found conflicting sources. Uh, 200 plus television episodes, including The Son of Robin Hood, Bonanza, Maverick, Mission Impossible, and Daniel Boone. All these thing, all the things we've ever heard of from this era, basically. So, the usual suspects to a certain degree. Yeah, but a fairly prolific uh, TV writer. Indeed. Stanley Adams, we have seen pop up before because he played Cyrano Jones in Trouble with Tribbles. Mm -hmm. He's a prolific actor and uh, has been in everything as well. Yes. <laughs> but not usually as the writer, but, you know, some, you know, some folks uh, do more than one thing. Yeah, did at least some screenwriting. Including something for the Iron Horse, or Iron Horse, <laughs> you know. I also forgot to say, this episode is called The Mark of Gideon. Hmm. Are we going to get markers today? Yeah, you're going to paint on your face, draw, <laughs> pass out, and they scribble on you, draw stars and swirly cues like they do in anime. It actually happened in a D&D game with me in it recently. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how D&D &D always has Sharpies in it somehow. Well, they're like magical Sharpies or something like that. But anyway, back to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we do have several guest stars this week, even though it's a bottle episode. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Weird, it's like, yeah. <laughs> so we have uh, Shannon Acker as Odonna. I, I thought it was Adonna or Ladonna or, yeah, several times there. But yeah, Odonna. Is Odonna. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to say. She's been in a number of things, including uh, The Young and the Restless and Days of Our Lives. Yep. Canadian actress in Mazel. She, uh, at this time, she was in, you know, all the usual suspects, Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, yada, yada. The Wild Wild West. Yes, that too. Everyone was in that. It's fun. She was also in the, you know, the best television show of the 60s that has sci-fi elements. Get smart. <laughs> <laughs> also, we have David Hurst playing Ambassador Hoden. He was a German-born actor known for his role in Hello, Dolly. Hmm. Oh, hello, Dolly. In this era, he was in Man from Uncle, Girl from Uncle, which I did had not heard of before this. I think I've heard it mentioned like once. <laughs> Mission Impossible, Flying Nun. Man from Uncle was a spy show. I kept thinking it was a cowboy show <laughs> this entire time. Yeah, it's a, a spy show, and uh, they actually had a, a movie of it a few years ago, and it's actually pretty good. This whole time was like, man from uncle. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, some sort of cowboy town or something. <laughs> sure. Nope, it's like a UN covert legalistic extradition. I don't know. <laughs> One of these days I should do some amount of research on the things I talk about on this show. <laughs> you, you do plenty of research, uh, Gapoin. Don't, don't, yeah, I'm the one who's failing most of the time. <laughs> and finally we have Eugene Darnowski, who played... Horda, who uh, mostly I write as Hoden's assistant because they don't really use his name. The, the guy that kind of mostly stands there and whispers occasionally. Yeah, he's been in many supporting roles. Uh, he was Stalin in the Command and Conquer Red Alert video games, which I thought was fun. <laughs> 
He's also in Seinfeld. He also played previously uh, Char Jess, the dilithium miner in Mud's Women. And oh, he yeah. will go on to play Commander Quint- Quinteros, can never pronounce that guy's name, who helps the Binars install the upgraded computer system of the Enterprise in the episode 11001001. I don't know. This guy seems sketchy then, yeah, because that, that, that was a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that was an entire thing. But it was fine. It was oh, benevolent. It was, it was a benevolent whole thing. <laughs> Just full of lies and deceit, like today's episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, that one was one of those, like, why didn't she just ask for help? It's like, oh, yeah. we could have asked for help? Well, darn. But <laughs> you might have said no. <laughs> <laughs> He's also Batman. Yeah. We have a star-studded <laughs> cast this time. Everyone's in Batman. Yes. <laughs> season three Star Trek, aka another season of Batman. That would be way better. <laughs> I still want Batman to just show up. It's like holy dilithium, Batman. Beam Robin down, quickly. <laughs> okay, we should probably t- actually talk about the stupid episode. <laughs> okay, so where do we begin? Now we got we got some sort of uh, captain's log at the beginning, right? Yes. So so over to Gideon. They're no they're not Federation, but want to join, I guess. But they've been difficult as they don't want us to actually drop by and say hello. Until now, they want me. Just me. Guess they figured out how awesome I am. The Enterprise has arrived at Gideon, which is a notoriously isolationist planet that for some reason is considering Federation membership. We can make more friends. Hooray! Yeah, the isolationists can make friends. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so after years of negotiation, they've decided that they are going to allow a single human to beam down, which of course is Kirk because it's his show. Kirk, you're awesome. So come on down. You're great. Come and uh, hang out all by yourself with us. So Spock beams Kirk down to the planet using the thrice confirmed coordinates that they give them very slowly every time. So the audience can make sure to uh, n- write those numbers down for themselves. Yes. Remember to write these numbers down and then hide them in a deck of cards and then minus four and plus three. And now it's your birthday. Magic. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> but Kirk does not arrive on the planet. Instead, he is beamed back on board his own ship. But now everyone's gone. Whoops. Um, did we get beamed into another parallel universe or... Uh... You know, did the, c- the crew get abducted while he wasn't paying attention? Something happened, and now Kirk's all alone. But apparently, everyone else isn't really gone, because back on the normal populated bridge, Ambassador Hoden of Gideon calls to inform Spock that Kirk, in fact, never arrived on the planet, and they're still waiting for him. Oh no, something horrible has happened to the captain! Spock is surprised to hear this, since he beamed him down personally. He again confirms the transporter coordinates. Spock asks for permission to beam down and begins searching for Kirk himself, but Hoden refuses to let anyone other than Kirk set foot on the planet. And it's fine. They're going to look for him himself. They don't want to be impacted with all these violent impulses of other races or whatever their excuse is. So you're telling the Vulcan, who their entire thing is overcoming violent impulses, to not drop by? But Odin assures Spock that they will conduct their own very, very thorough search, and he suggests that they see to their transporter. All right, so uh, there might have been a transport malfunction, and got another mere universe thing going on. We don't know, so let's 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 check this out. So back on the empty ship, Kirk is just wandering around, finding no one, doing a weird internal monologue thing until he randomly come across a woman who's dancing through the corridors. Yeah, as you do. She calls herself Odana, and the last thing she remembers is standing in a hall filled with thousands of bodies crushing her to death until she was suddenly here all alone. So she was in a mosh pit. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's very heavy metal music planet. <laughs> no, no, no. Now, I wonder what kind of heavy metal music they have there, honestly, now. <laughs> I mean, it's probably the Who, because that's what they play the, that Star Wars game because non-English metal is apparently alien now. Okay. <laughs> Back on the other ship, Spock is making no progress in his negotiations with Starfleet to allow him to force his way down to the planet. He's made no negotiations with the planet and he spends a great deal of time complaining about diplomats. Well, did he do this bef- uh, before recently? Like, it's like, yes, yeah, so all these pencil pushers are getting in my way. Yep. Me, the logical Spock, I'm going to be slightly peeved about this. Every other line out of Spock's mouth is, 
diplomats. They can't get anything done. Diplomats and bureaucrats accomplish the same thing, which is nothing. Oh, I, I hope Spock never, like, later in life becomes an ambassador then. No, he is a man of action. Not like these diplomats and bureaucrats who want him to respect sovereign territory and borders. Yeah, and all those things that we're supposed to pretend we believe in as the Federation, guys. Come on. Well, Kirk and Odana on their ship make their way back to the empty bridge, and she tells him that she doesn't remember where she came from, but it was definitely not Gideon. Nope, nuh-uh, never heard of it. Well, that's kind of suspicious, but maybe she's right. Maybe she was abducted and put on this ship with Kirk randomly by some weird aliens or something, and they're in... Maybe this is the far future. This is the uh, the year 1978. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> And Kirk then confirms with the view screen that they are, in fact, no longer orbiting the planet. Well, um, I guess we're uh, on autopilot? Maybe we should change our course, or try to get any course going. Back with Spock, the Council has concluded its search and not found Kirk anywhere. Spock again requests that he can beam down, and they again refuse. And then Spock gets all clever and goes, Oh, but I want to beam down to test our transporter equipment to make sure it's working properly. And Hoden agrees, but only that they let his assistant beam up first. Uh, they send coordinates for beam out, and Hoden's assistant is brought aboard. Spock then goes, Okay, time for me to beam down like we agreed. And Hoden goes, Oh, no, you tested your thing. Yeah, so you don't need to be coming down here at all. Come on. So Spock was checkmated again. Now he's mad at diplomats because he's bad at it. Maybe I'll have to show, beat them at their own game. Maybe I'll go to like some diplomatic training and uh, I'm starting to sound like Kirk now. Hmm. Kirk and O'Donna are trying to communicate with anyone outside the ship, but Kirk is getting no response from anybody on subspace. Wait a moment. What if the, uh, they're, they're, they're trapped in a, 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 like a warp bubble and it's slowly going to collapse, and the universe outside is going to disappear until it, 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 the entire ship vanishes as well. And it's somehow shaped by your thing you were thinking about right beforehand when you were talking to your old mentor from school? Um, well, this would be Kirk, so he'd be thinking about pretty girls. So. I mean, I guess that tracks. <laughs> Except there's only one. You'd think there'd be more of them showing up. Well, that's, that's who he was thinking about at the time. <laughs> Now she's all distracted him, you know. Anyway. But Odana is not concerned that they can't get a hold of anyone or that they're stuck here because she is enjoying being alone for basically the first time in her entire life. Because where she comes from, there are just too many people and there's nowhere to be alone ever from the lowest valley to the highest mountaintop. Wait a moment. Is she from the, 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 the Snowpiercer train? Yep. So we've solved that mystery. <laughs> And she just wants to be alone on this ship with him forever. And then she kisses him. And as they turn to leave, behind them, the view screen changes to show dozens of faces watching them. Oh, no. This alternate dimension and warp bubble time travel plot has ghosts in it, too. Maybe it's an alien zoo. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Kirk starts wandering the ship to find a med kit because his arm has been hurting since he got here. Also, sometime during transport, he seems to have lost a few hours. Probably not related to anything. Let's keep going. <laughs> but before they get anywhere, they hear a strange noise that's coming from outside. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, you know, ASMR sort of thing going on. So Kirk takes Odana to the observation deck and opens a window, and there are a bunch of people looking at them, but they are almost immediately replaced by a starfield. Well, that was weird. The zoo idea is starting to pick up some merit here. Odana does not seem as concerned as you might think about this, how space is somehow filled with random green people. Well, she's never been to outer space, so maybe, you know, this is what she would expect. And still expects Kirk to just be happy alone with her forever, even though there's a bunch of people outside now for some reason. Well, if we just close all the windows and not hang out on the bridge, and uh, we can live long, happy lives here, right? We cut to the council chamber, where we see Hoden watching Kirk and Adana on a screen. They have interdimensional time-traveling view screen? Odana says that she's never felt like this before, which Kirk seems to take as she's in love, but she says, actually, I'm sick, and then falls over. Wait a moment. Kirk, did you love this lady to death? <laughs> oh, that was what I thought was going on, yeah. <laughs> the council all runs out, and out the window we can see the multitude of people that was outside of the ship. Wait, so, so the crowds have moved on? 
And then they're going to form a wash pit somewhere else uh, now? Now they're watching the council of Gideon. This kind of weird, yeah. Hoden and his guards go inside the empty Enterprise to find Kirk carrying Odana. And Hoden thanks Kirk for giving his daughter a terrible, terrible, deadly illness. Okay, wait a moment. What's ha- so we're, we're actually on the planet and this is a, just a, a fake Enterprise you mocked up and she's now sick. Yep. Okay, then. Now, back with Spock, he is now speaking directly with a Federation admiral who, of course, is a out-of-touch bureaucrat who won't let Spock endanger people by beaming down to the planet and find Kirk, even if Kirk, the most important man in the universe, is missing. Um, insert uh, clip of Spock uh, crushing that computer from uh, a buck time here. So back down on Gideon, Odana is dying of an illness, one that almost killed Kirk when he was younger, called Vegan Chronometrioscidus. <laughs> Now, we're we're, we're going to call it uh, the bad bug or something, because um, we don't want to go anything too topical for for that right now, right? When I was reading through, I really forgot uh, what it was called. And since vegan and vegan are spelled the same, I got very confused. <laughs> the, the vegan virus. <laughs> so there apparently is a cure to this virus, but it has to be treated within the first 24 hours. And Kirk wants to cure Odana, but Hoden refuses because... She volunteered to be deliberately infected with blood that they stole from Kirk. Interesting. We don't know yeah. why yet, because we keep cutting back and forth. They, they spend forever explaining their evil plot. Yes. <laughs> back on the ship, Spock is about to violate a direct order from Starfleet, because he decided to compare the coordinates that they gave them to beam down Kirk and the coordinates that they were given to beam up Hoden's assistant, and they were not the same coordinates, even though they should have been from the same place. Dun-dun-dun! Because Kirk was supposed to beam down directly into their council chambers, and that didn't happen, apparently, so those coordinates must should have matched, but they didn't! So if you put down the coordinates in your workbooks, uh, then uh, that this is where the check and it could be all like, Holy smokes, Spock is correct. If they if they don't know where the coordinates are going, like based on the coordinates, then the coordinates are just some random, completely arbitrary set of numbers. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't have any actual like like grid map or whatever that's actually aiming the transporter. It's just some random arbitrary set of numbers. Yep. Transporters are even more scary. Yes. <laughs> We're going to put you down at these coordinates. Um, are, what is these coordinates based off of? Um, we just kind of say these coordinates and then it works. Yep. But, but, but where is your axis? Where Where is up? Where is north? You don't know, do you? No. <laughs> you're just putting us down and you're hoping we come together in one piece. So now Spock will beam down to the original coordinates that they sent Kirk hoping to find him, despite what the bureaucrats and diplomats want him to do. Spock is up to... It's going to cause some trouble here. He's going to strike back. So Spock appears on the fake ship and begins his search for Kirk. Well, this is weird. Back in the council chambers, Hoden finally explains what is going on. Finally. Okay, so we're not in a parallel dimension or time traveled or anything like that. We just have a fake Enterprise, and your daughter is sick, and there's a bunch of people outside. So, Gideon used to be a paradise world, where everything humans could possibly want and a complete lack of disease in the atmosphere. And through good, clean, Christian living, Gideons slowly extended their life expectancy, but also increased their birth rate, and the combination of these things, along with no natural diseases, made death so rare that the planet is now full of people to the point that no one can be alone for even a second and everyone is suffering horribly. Everyone's like literally packed in together. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable. Kirk asks why they don't just sterilize themselves, because of course that's the first thing he would jump to. But this doesn't work because they regenerate organs. And then Kirk goes, well, you know, we've got contraception now. Yes. And he goes, oh no. <laughs> We respect life, and it's against our religion to use contraception or something. Okay, so so you can't use contraception. You can't control your birth rate at all. Have you tried anything? We've at tried all? nothing, and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> and they respect life so much that instead of using a dang condom, they're letting his own daughter kill herself with a virus. So... 
Birth control bad. Death by a virus is good. Yep. But also, it's not a normal virus that would, like, spread from person to person. It's some sort of serum virus that they need to keep Kirk around so that they can keep extracting his blood and keep harvesting virus from his system in order to use. So are you going to be setting up a lottery, too? No, the da wants to die specifically to inspire young people to do this. Because, of course, we also have to be killing off the young people for some reason. Well, the, the young people are inexperienced and don't have the life experience to appreciate life enough, right? Yeah. And the entire thing with the ship, the entire freaking thing with him beaming down to the ship and meeting her was because she wanted him to fall in love with her to the point that he would willingly stay and become a virus donor. That doesn't make much sense. Yeah. I don't think they understand human psychology at all. See, the entire time they were do they were talking about this, I thought that the entire thing with her trying to seduce him was that it was an STI. Yeah, that would kind of make sense. You know, Kirk has already been abducted for, uh, you know, getting busy with folks before in this show, in this season. So, you know, it might be retreading old ground, but it would kind of make sense given what you're trying to do plot-wise here. But, but of uh, course, they're not going to do that in the 60s. This yeah. is not something they're going to touch in the 60s. But it makes sense. You, who have slept with every alien woman you've seen for the last five years, are so riddled with disease, you are the perfect candidate for this. You see, Kirk has three Stooges syndrome, as described on The Simpsons, where he's just had so many of them, they can't all kill him at once. But if someone only gets some of them, they're in trouble. <laughs> so Donna's dying, and she wants to see Kirk one last time before she dies, because she really did fall in love with him, the big goober. This is, this, is, this is tragic. Now now we're going to a single few hours of, of being madly in love together. Okay, that doesn't work at all. So I, I don't know what to do with this. But Spock's found his way off of the ship. He knocks out a couple of guards, finds Kirk. They both grab Adana and they beam back to the real Enterprise. Let's get the hell out of here. And uh, McCoy, here's your patient for today, and uh, you're in this episode now. Okay. McCoy is easily able to cure Adana, even though they got her there just under the wire. She is upset, not because her plan was foiled, but because Kirk's not mad at her about the kidnapping. Well, technically, you're more of an accessory to kidnapping, not the actual one who kidnapped him. <laughs> he is apparently too horny to be mad. Because he was like, oh, well, if I'm going to be mad, you have to let me look at you. <laughs> so I'll, I'll fume later. Yeah. But Adana returns to Gideon because now that she's survived, she can be the living Petri dish for her people. And they don't need Kirk anymore at the end. So uh, they were going to keep Kirk there when they could have just as easily had Adana or anyone else be the sort of this plague bearer that they really want. No, but she was so committed to, to dying to, to inspire the young people to go do this and readjust their life cycle. That's what they kept saying. We are readjusting our natural life cycle, which so is why you, it's different than just suicide, even though it's very literally suicide. It's suicide through a very complicated fashion. And when I was re-watching this, I didn't realize the entire conflict of the episode is only set off by Hoden calling Spock and going, hey, Kirk didn't get here? Mm-hmm. He could have just been stayed silent? Yeah. They could have just not <laughs> talked to them anymore, and then, like, they'd never know? Well, this maybe comes back to that whole isolation thing again. Yeah, because this planet, it, like, actively has been trying to avoid interacting with anyone pretty much forever. And, uh, you know, they have, they have their reasons, the various levels of credibility, but they probably have no clue how to interact with anyone from outside their planet. <laughs> and so, 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 so when, you know, you know, so they'd expect them to be trying to call up. It's like, oh, yeah, well, everything's cool. And, you know, everything right. Uh, but they're like, oh, we got to get up in front of that. Otherwise, we seem like we're weak or something. I don't know. They just they, they have no idea how to interact with people. So I can kind of forgive that, even though it's really a dumb move. <laughs> they could have done everything's fine here. How are you? And yes. then if their plan worked, he would have fallen madly in love and called the Enterprise and gone, sorry, I'm staying. I'm madly in love. Yeah. You would have been able to keep your Kirk guy and uh, Spock could uh, be in charge of the Enterprise and uh, slightly upset about that. And you can go complain about ambassadors elsewhere. 
Or, since apparently transporter coordinates are completely random and no one double checks these things, just go, hey, you didn't get here. Read us the coordinates again. Oh no, that was supposed to be 3-5. You beamed him into a volcano. Oh well, bye. Well, that sucks. Um, Want to try again? Uh, we could get you better coordinates this time for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you transposed the numbers. Why did you have your transporter operator, the one with dyslexia? <laughs> Yeah, that would be a kind of important thing to be careful about there, yeah. Okay, that's all the fun we can have with this episode. Everything oh, else no. is depressing. Oh no. Oh no, maybe we could make fun of the depressing too. Um, we'll see. <laughs> maybe. So, this entire episode is predicated on the idea of population increase outstripping available resources, in this case space, because they apparently are dealing with a post-scarcity society in which food or other potential resource problems would be too easy to fix and they're not allowed to use condoms so that gets into some of the racism and stuff that is inherent with this kind of model so uh this was something that americans were thinking about a lot in the 1960s because the american population had basically tripled after the war during the baby boom so uh, all, all those baby boomers that uh you know people are okay boomering at uh that's they they they, they, were, they their existence spooked people enough to cause this sort of thinking. Yeah, the basic idea is uh, modern technology has advanced to the point that a wealthy nation can essentially double its population every generation, which is going to lead to a massive amount of exponential growth, which we have basically just seen here. And then everyone is freaking out because if every baby boomer had as many kids as their parents did, being my generation, uh, it would in fact like double or triple the population and would easily outstrip available resources or so the theory goes because this is based on a very, very old economic idea called Malthusian economics or the Malthusian crisis. So uh, Malth Malthusianism uh, was written in 1798, so it's very, very old. Yes. From a thing by Thomas Malthus called an essay on the principles of population. Mm -hmm. His basic thesis was that it is fairly obvious that population growth is exponential because every individual in a population can have many children, and then those children can have children, and those children can have more children, leading to an exponential increase in population over time. It's something you can see with animals all over the place. And so you get this, this population curve that just keeps growing at a faster and faster rate. And so you get like a little swish up curve on the, at the graphs. But for some reason, his entire theory is predicated on the idea that while population growth is exponential, resource growth is linear. Hmm. So you got a more flat curve there. So the, uh, the two curves intersect at some point and suddenly the population curve is going way higher than the resource curve. And then, oh, no. Uh, what we were operating with in the 60s was something that is known as Neo-Malthusian theory, which was when, after World War II, the baby boom led to a resurgence in these particular worries. Uh, less so about Croths because the kind of uh, scientific revolution that was going on around the same time, it also greatly increased the efficiency of the American food supply but also other concerns such as the newly found uh, environmentalism and also space, even though for some reason people in the U.S. continuously worry about space, even though a good 70% of the country is empty land. Because a lot of people in the U.S. live in cities, but they don't realize there's people that, that there's a lot of places outside the cities that exist. Now, it is impossible to know whether or not this episode was influenced by this or not, because uh, while it was definitely influenced by these population fears, there was a book that came out right before this episode was written in 1968 called The Population Bomb, which went on to be sort of a best-selling book written by a Stanford University professor named Paul R. Irch... Elric? Elric. Elric. E-H-R-L-I-C-H, yes. Yeah. Eschrich. Eschlich. Now we're going to call him a lich. Okay. Yeah. 
He basically did a controlled population study, or so he claims, where he gave a bunch of rats, or mice rather, he gave a bunch of lab mice a utopian uh, want-free society and just watched what would happen. He gave them an enclosure with plenty of room, as much food as they possibly wanted, and no particular worries. And he watched their population increase to the point that space itself became the primary concern, which is why I'm wondering if this episode was more influenced by this book than other general concerns because he continued to give them as much food and other resources as they needed until space itself became the pressing issue. And so you're sort of keeping them inside this intentionally limited enclosure without allowing the, the rats to say, I don't know, try to expand elsewhere. Interesting, yes. <laughs> and of course the mice became what I'm just going to call depressed because we test psychiatric medication on mice and rats. So of course they can become depressed. Otherwise your theories would be invalid. So I'm just going to keep using uh, emotional terms, even though you're not supposed to with animals, yep. but you know, you can either use emotional terms or you can stop studying emotions on animals. It's one of the two. So, so, so uh, rat uh, depressed. So yeah. whatever their version is. <laughs> They eventually started turning on each other. Uh, males started competing with each other because mice uh, live in a fairly uh, odd sort of hierarchical family grouping situation and there were too many males around. So a lot of stuff was going wrong until eventually the entire population basically turned on itself and collapsed. So you got sort of a big die-off at the end. And this led to this book basically predicting the same thing would happen to humans if we didn't do something. Oh no! We have to start murdering each other like that big die-off at the end right now, right? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. So, according to original Malthusian theory, there are two ways to keep a population in check. He called it preventative population checks and positive population checks. A Positive population check is a natural occurrence, or at least natural in the course of human existence occurrence, that naturally kills off part of the population, this being war, plague, and famine. So the, the usual bad things uh, where you got the, the, the horsemen of the apocalypse dropping through. And these obviously are undesirable outcomes, but are going to be uh, apparently unavoidable consequences of unchecked population growth. Uh, he advocated for preventative population growth, which in his mind was not having kids. Just not ha getting busy, not having kids. And, uh, you know, because, you know, back in the 1700s, you know, there was a couple attempts at birth control, but they weren't really reliable, you know, and not very well, you know, uh, spread and all that either. And so you, you only got kind of one option there. Well, there were other things that you could do, but he advocated exclusively abstaining from marriage and procreation. A lot of people probably didn't give him much, you know, <laughs> much time of days because like, we're already married, guys. We're getting married like 16 here. Well, this is the thing. Like A lot of people subscribed to this theory. It was very, very well known. And a lot of literature from the time references it. The There were, po there were politicians who were advocating uh, ways to limit the surplus population, which is why that term shows up in A Christmas Carol. So this theory basically influenced politics in Europe and later America for hundreds of years. That there's too many of these, uh, you know, pointless poor people running around and uh, we need to like uh, put, put a stop to that nonsense. Was even very directly satirized around the time in... Uh, a modest proposal by Jonathan Swift. Like this was a very well-known theory. You know that it's not the full title of the of the book. It's a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country, and for making them beneficial to the public. Widely considered to be the best work of satire ever penned in the English language. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, they basically, uh, yeah, yeah, he, 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 you know, with, does the straight face sort of. Here's an absurd thing, and that absurd thing is we should be you know, letting the poor people sell their children to be eaten. My favorite part is he got the idea from his American friend who said children are delicious. <laughs> That's a little unsettling. 
So these two fears were very, very present in the minds of people in the 1960s. This sort of overcrowding, overpopulation idea keeps popping up. Um, even later on, there's a movie that I, I enjoy as a comedy. It's a nice satirical piece. I have some criticisms of its messaging, but the fairly well-known cult hit Idiocracy uh, is basically predicated on this idea that rich and well-off intelligent people will have fewer children than less intelligent poor people, and therefore the population will continue to screw to skew in that direction until everyone in the world is stupid. I, I think both possible uh, words are workable there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, this is a, assumes a lot about the rich people and the poor people that you know they are of you know inherently this or that sort of quality which is complete bunk of course but you know this is the thing the the reason that you can criticize this theory now the main criticism of this theory that i have heard the in fact only criticism of this theory that i have ever heard predicated in mainstream sources is that the expected exponential population growth did in fact not happen there's a little bit of a uh, f decline in uh, birth rates in uh, places like the united states and a whole bunch of other places in the world yes see the basic theory of this is that people have a lot of children because there's natural die-off of children in a population but as medical technology improves fewer and fewer children die off. So instead of having a high birth rate that is then culled by natural die-off amongst young people until you get to a more stable population, uh, you get this kind of, well, more and more children are living, so now we have a massive increase in our population. And you do see this when a nation or area of the world begins to improve its ec general economic circumstance, there is a sudden increase in population because of a lower infant mortality rate. But this usually lasts one to two generations before the population naturally adjusts to the new idea of children being something that you can choose to have or not, and that the children you have will usually live. In some ways, having children becomes a luxury as opposed to just something that kind of happens or is essential for your farming said to you know, keep uh, up its production. And while I wanted to mention that out of completeness, I find it a, in a completely uh, half-hearted criticism of this theory because, as you said, the entire theory is predicated on the idea that people are unchanging and that there is something about poor, undesirable people that just makes them that way it makes their families that way it makes anyone that they may produce that way which is a little absurd yeah this is in fact something that the united states loved we keep coming back to this mm -hmm. because in the 1920s and 30s we had this marvelous little experiment called eugenics we've talked about this before but yes let's let's go we're gonna to touch on it again here because it is very relevant we decided that you could use modern science to selectively, positively control your population using new preventative population measures, and that it was in fact the state's duty to make sure poor, stupid, or otherwise disabled people could not breed and create more of themselves that would continue to be a burden on the state and the society. So we don't want to have those people in our midst so let us make sure that they well they, they end this generation <laughs> and that is what this kind of thing leads to and i have still heard it advocated for to greater or lesser extents we are still forcibly sterilizing people in prisons there are still suggestions that we should pay women who are in financial trouble to become sterilized we should just give them money but if we can't just give people money we have to pay them to become sterilized so they won't squander their money on having hordes and hordes of children it's kind of very very annoying i guess is the uh, the, 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 the 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 nice way to sort of put it 
that this keeps coming back and it keeps being sort of reformulated in, you know, different sort of twists on the same uh, theme. And it's like, are we ever going to learn this lesson, guys? Seriously? No. The very interesting thing is you can look at the data that we have and say, well, poor people tend, not always, but there is a definite trend to poorer people with fewer resources having more children. Richer people with more resources, the resources maybe to choose when they have children, be able to do something about it if they wind up in an accidental pregnancy, have more access to things like just normal contraception, or even not have to consider it a burden if there is an unplanned pregnancy because they are wealthier people, tend to have fewer children. But the thing that we come to with this, even though we live in America, the land of opportunity where anyone can be anything, is that poor people are just inherently poor and will inherently have more children, and rich people are inherently rich and will inherently have fewer children, instead of the fact that rich people having access to more resources lets them control their birth rate better. So... We can't just give poor people more resources because they are, you know, inherently too stupid to use those resources correctly to control their birth rate, which is the entire argument that we get against giving poor people resources. If they knew how to manage resources, they wouldn't be poor now, would they? When in reality, if you were to actually give people the resources so they could, you know, live good lives, you know, not have to struggle, you know, control their their reproductive, uh, you know, capabilities and things like that. They would actually make good choices, and you know that has been shown in various instances throughout the you know, you know the decades and places. Uh, I, I guess one of my uh, you know uh, favorite sort of I guess success stories is uh, the the microloan system in uh, uh, India, where suddenly it's like, all right, we can like start a business with like a hundred dollars because you know we're everyone in our area is uh, you know horribly poor, and then suddenly we have a thriving economy on the local level just from you know getting this you know, effectively a pittance for, you know, people in like the United States to, you know, suddenly turn an entire area around because just a few people were able to, uh, you know, make, you know, good use of this, but without those resources and, you know, this sort of, you know, you know, thinking of, oh, they'll just abuse it. Then that would have never happened. It's almost like if you give people the resources they need to succeed, they'll succeed. (laughs) Surprise. Uh, And, you know, and it's, it's ridiculous that we keep, pretending they have these resources but actively making sure they don't it's almost like it's sort of set up as an absurd trap of some sort come on almost kafka-esque in a way Hmm. Uh, i do feel like there's another thing that we really really have to touch on that they brought up very specifically in this episode for some ungodly reason yep i use that term very deliberately (laughs) so uh so about that contraception eh Yes, this theory generally is tinged with a large amount of either straight-up racism or, at the very least, ethnic bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are very related, but not entirely interchangeable terms. So, early on, when people were talking about the poor and the undesirable population growth that they brought on in America... There was a large influx of immigrants from Italy and from Ireland. The populations of Italy and Ireland were predominantly Catholic, uh, which led to a very strong anti-Catholic bias in the U.S. population. uh, So so, so what what are some uh, maybe relevant differences between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism, especially as it's practiced in the U.S. and uh, other parts of yeah. Yes, one well-known tenant of the Catholic Church, which is being debated and somewhat relaxed recently, is a complete ban on contraception. Any form of contraception, not just anti-abortion, but even preventative measures. So, you know, no condoms, no birth control pills, no, you know, other, you know, devices and things like that. Um, I'm getting the name of it right now. Um, yeah, none of that, none of that's allowed because it would prevent the, for sure has to happen sort of pregnancies if you have sex. Yes, because you basically can't remove, well, there's two things. You can't remove the like 
thing that makes it so that you don't want to have sex because having sex is wrong and sinful, but also it's wrong to like interfere with the whole God plan thing of if you were supposed to have a kid, you should have a kid, and apparently God can't get around a condom. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> Wait, this leads to an important question, Gepwin. Is there a condom? Mm-hmm. Could God create a condom so powerful that he could not uh, get around? The answer is apparently yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> And of course, even into the more modern day, um, is anyone with eyes knows right now the kind of anti-ethnic bias that we had against Italians and you know, other immigrants, like Italian, Irish, Scottish, all the various immigrants that we were being very, very biased and racist against even you know, uh, 60 or so years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have now completely integrated into what you consider the white U.S. population. But we still have a strong anti-Catholic bias in arguments like this because right now a large majority of the Catholic population of the world lives in South America. Da-da-da. And guess what uh, You know, a lot of folks in the U.S. are targeting their uh, current racism on is, well, anyone south of the border. So South America, Mexico, and everything between. Yes, which is strongly, strongly Catholic. In fact, there is still a weird anti-Catholic bias amongst modern U.S. Christians, especially evangelicals. The whole idolater argument gets brought up a lot. There's a, there's just a bunch of really weird Christian infighting happening that you might not even be 100% aware of if you are not a particularly religious person. It's, uh, you know, that whole Reformation thing back in like the 14 and you know, 1500s there. Uh, yeah, that was... That was, you know, you're just getting things started, apparently. (laughs) So, basically, what we have here is stupid space Catholics who won't control their population, but are willing to use some sort of weird workaround to kill themselves. So, they they are basically being cast as the villains here, and given that kind of anti-Catholic bias, it's pretty clear what the sort of allegories or comparisons are going on here as far as these guys. There was a very, very big anti-Catholic bias in this time. In fact, um, the entire thing with um, with John F. Kennedy, one of the reasons he was a very big deal as a U.S. president was because he was the first Catholic president. Yeah, yeah up until that point, no Catholics. Uh, you know, there's a, a few folks that were kind of like, eh, I don't know, but there's mainly mainline Protestants of various sorts. So, yes, this episode was written in the midst of anti-Catholic bias in the U.S., which is why birth control is very specifically mentioned. And they are more against birth control generally. He doesn't have the same objections to sterilization other than that it is physically impossible for his super species. Mm -hmm. He doesn't bring up the whole we can't interfere with life thing with sterilization. So sterilization would be fine, and the U.S. was still loving to advocate sterilization. It is the first thing that Kirk brings up is our wonderful modern technologies of sterilization. We are okay with sterilization because it's forcing this idea onto people. We don't like birth control because it's something that people can use to empower themselves, especially in the 1960s going into the 70s when birth control pills were very much leading to the Lithuanian's liberation movement and bolstering equal rights for women, which theoretically we had, but, you know, no one really believed that until at the time. And there's still lots of problems, too. There's still a ton of problems. But, like, birth control pills have been very well-tracked to link with the women's liberation movement and the introduction of modern forms of feminism. So, we, women could start controlling their bodies. Maybe they can control other things about their lives. They don't have to be sort of subservient to the, uh, the society and the men in their lives, and Maybe they can choose their own destiny. And there we go. (laughs) The only other thing to mention is that it's because they are working with a disease, they are very definitely working into the Malthusian collapse model of positive population control, reintroducing a plague or other such, you know, bacterium that is going to control the population. They do it in a weird, weird, weird way for some reason. They can't just spread a disease they have to inject it into people, which means it's just poison, which means it is literally just euthanasia. Yep. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's what I brought up is like, are they going to have a lottery? Is there going to be volunteers? Is there going to be some other 
random selection or something like that because uh, it's it kind of begs the questions like okay you now have your your insta kill thing that's apparently not a violation of how much you love life which is what they kind of use to sort of excuse everything else uh except for the regenerating organ stuff uh and but again so this is the only acceptable means of euthanasia here apparently and so how do you distribute it who gets to be uh dead who gets to continue to live and they are fine with this as soon as they aren't kidnapping kirk anymore they don't care (laughs) this is flat out my least favorite kind of of speculative science fiction (laughs) Because it's basically saying, oh, you think that a post-scarity society is so great. You think modern medicine is so great. You think that taking care of all these problems is so great. Well, look at how stupid you are. You didn't think of this, did you, stupid person? It's, it's like the, the whole be afraid of computers thing all over again, just at a different sort of, you know, target. Yeah, this one is be afraid of medical science. And, you know... And Catholics. And, ca- and Catholics, yeah. So, uh, it's, you know, it's, and there are, and their whole worldview there is just so ridiculous. It's like, doesn't make any sense to us. And that's why I can't recommend this episode at all. Also, biologically, mm-hmm. um, this doesn't work because um, as stressful situations arise, mm-hmm the less good a population is doing, including stress, not just things like famine and disease and whatnot, but the more stressful and less good your living situation becomes, the less motivated you are to have sex and reproduce, and the less physically able you become to do so. And especially when you're on this planet, everyone's literally packed together. Are they getting busy in the streets? Is that what's going on? Or... Or maybe there's just maybe releasing spores or something. Yeah, they're just they're Warhammer orcs. They reproduce from spores, which is why they're isolationists. Because if they go to another planet, they're just going to spore it up. And everyone's going to be pregnant with their you know you know super live forever people. Uh, you know you know it doesn't matter what your gender is. You're you're going to be having their kids. Surprise. And it is odd, given the times that they've done. Very, something very similar in this and other sci-fi series that they don't simply recommend moving off planet. It's like, we have starships. You said you wanted to join the Federation. There's a bunch of planets out there. We could, like, move half of you over there and then move half of those people somewhere else. <laughs> in fact, as dumb as I think it is as an argument... That is still a strong motivator people are using now for off-world colonization. That we can spread our population out, have the resources of multiple planets, not have to worry about overwhelming our resource pool. I think a better motivation is to not have all our eggs in one basket myself, but you know... (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty sturdy basket. I mean, by the time the sun explodes and something happens to the Earth, we're not going to be humans anyway. And, you know, I, I want our various descendants throughout the stars to meet up to, again at some point and be like, how'd you get three heads? <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the uh, what about the Asimov model where all of the space colonies are going to leave and have better lives and go like, Earth, screw that place. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have transducer lobes and things like that. It's going to be great. (laughs) And just one final note. The entire idea, anyone, now that you hear saying the entire problem with the world is that we have too many people is still working off this model, which is provably wrong. The entire problem with our current ecosystem of population versus resources is not one of scarcity. It is one of mismanagement. This can be demonstrated economically. It has been. I'm not going to go into the numbers, but we have enough resources for every single person on the planet two or three times over. We just don't supply it to them. It's almost like there's some sort of a system of artificial scarcity sort of being uh, invoked here that makes things intentionally inefficient. Maybe for a profit. Hmm. I wonder. Possibly. That might be another show. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, do the, um, I was going to say something else, uh, jumping off that, but uh, I forgot what it is, so. 
Well, we've been pushing our hour, so unless we have anything else that we desperately want to cover on this horribly depressing subject... Um, I did, but I forgot what it was as well. <laughs> Alright, well, in that case, I think that we've forgotten our way into the galaxy's favorite game Woo! show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where today we have several contestants all competing. Actually, there's a lot more contestants than usual. Um, We had to expand the studio for this one, so uh, sorry if this is a little awkward for everybody. But anyway, our first uh, winner today has racked up a number of uh, uh, prizes, and, uh, you know, no, no, and today he's going to be sharing them with someone. So uh, we're going to be giving the TV Love Story Prize to Odonna and Kirk for seemingly falling in love for each other, and then... None of it making really much sense because, once again, TV love story. You know, what do they win, Gepwood? They win two single beds with a lamp awkwardly placed in between. That's how you fell in love on TV in the 60s. Indeed. Unless you're on the Adams Family. Anyway, <laughs> our second prize is the Evil Twin Prize, which goes to the Enterprise. We're having a duplicate on the planet that instead of, you know, taking you places, just kind of sits there and takes up space. What does it win, Gepwood? The Enterprise 2 gets a luxury makeover into a spacious resort hotel. Maybe instead of euthanizing your population, you take this big empty bit of space that you've made, turn it into rooms, let people cycle through, maybe have a lottery system, everyone can spend some time alone in this giant aircraft carrier-sized bit of empty land you managed to find somewhere. Yep. I wonder if they have thought about investing in high-rises. Hmm. Anyway, our final prize today is the Pro-Life Hypocrisy Prize, which goes to Holden and the rest of the leadership of Gideon for being, oh, gee whiz, loving life is how we get to live forever. It just sort of naturally happens or something. But some people gotta die, so let's get to killing in a way that least makes it look like we're murdering people. What does he, they, they win, Gepwin? They win a United States... Sexual education textbook from the mid-90s to early 2000s. Because it'll track, and I'm sure it's led to at least a couple murder-suicides. Well, I, I guess they're going to get some of what they wanted, and maybe if they leave it around for one of their people to read and maybe, you know, learn something from, maybe some other folks will get a better, you know, you know a bit of an education as well. Though it might not be a great one. That's all I got, Get when I'm depressed again. <laughs> yes. This was supposed to be fun, oh no. but nothing about this episode is fun. So thank you all for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Yay! That was a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Next week... What do we got? We got something called That, that Which Survives. Yes. We, we spoke at the same time. I'm, okay. I'm cool with that, though. Can't leave it in. <laughs> the Enterprise discovers a planet whose young age is inconsistent with the atmosphere and biology. Do do do. A beautiful young woman appears and randomly starts killing people. Yep. Sure. Yep. Um, it's just one of those episodes, then. I I have no, no idea what this episode's about. <laughs> the Enterprise finds itself... 990.7 light years from the planet. Okay, I also sure. spotted something about going warp 14. So once again, li lizard time. Yeah. Dum, the planet something. I don't know. There's. I have no clue what the... I'm trying to skim the synopsis for keywords and I'm not finding much. <laughs> Corpses, artificial something or other. So the bodies are going to hit the floor and everything's fake? Okay. Yeah. Let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> I did do a little bit of reading myself to get the stinger for next time. Yeah, I have no clue what this episode is about. I've never heard of it. It sounds bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so check us out then, I guess. Shrug? Yep. <laughs> Join us next week to figure out what on earth this is on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, another ghost computer? <laughs> You 
have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>